there's a brief episode in the Bible that will help us open up tonight's topic. If you brought a Bible with you, it's appropriate for tonight's topic. Um, It's Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? So this eunuch, this man who's been castrated, was serving as the treasurer of Ethiopia under their queen, Candace. He was an outsider to Israel, to Judaism. But there was something about the Jewish God, something about the Jewish way of life that had attracted him. So he made the long journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship, perhaps at one of the yearly Jewish festivals. And it seems that he either acquired or had already acquired a copy of part or maybe all of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, but he's stumped. And he's remarkably forthright about his inability to understand what the Bible means. Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? Now, I can relate to that. There's parts of the Bible I rarely read. Ezekiel with all the wheels turning in the wheels. Some of the night visions of Zechariah, I am utterly befuddled by them. The Bible is a big and complex, tough book. I'm convinced that many, many people don't read the Bible just because it's so difficult. And, and, and I think that so many people, they just never get past the sheer intimidation. And for those who do, we quickly discover that merely reading the Bible isn't enough. To read the Bible for all it's worth, you have to understand it. And to understand the Bible, you have to learn how to read it. And for us to read the Bible well, we have to be taught. How to read the Bible. That's the first thing I want to claim tonight. The first thing I want to say. How can I unless someone guides me is true. We don't just because we know how to read understand the Bible. The Bible is the true story of the world. And it's authoritative for all of life today. But for the Bible to bear fruit. It not only has to be read. It has to be understood. So tonight I'm going to do two things. First, I'm going to teach three fundamental guidelines for reading the Bible with understanding. And then I'm going to share four practical, helpful tricks for how to read the Bible within those guidelines. Now, these guidelines that I'm going to present actually come from the Bible. Luke chapter 24. The middle scene of the final chapter of Luke's gospel. The famous scene of Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus walks up on two disciples who are traveling the seven mile journey from the city of Jerusalem to the city of Emmaus. These two Disciples are well acquainted with the Bible. The Bible as it existed at that time, which is the Old Testament. They're Jews. So they've been studying and listening to it read and debating it and memorizing it and immersing their lives in it for their whole life. 
And they were raised by people who had done that, who were raised by people who had done that, who were raised by people who had done that. They, not only did they know all about the, the Old Testament, they knew all about the life of Jesus. They had been followers of Jesus. They knew about his miracles. They heard his teachings. They knew about his crucifixion and they also knew about his resurrection. And they are still in despair. Notice Luke 24 verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They knew all the data that's contained in this book. Stuff in the Old Testament, the accounts of the life of Jesus, and they still despaired. Now, I think that that's true for a lot of people today. I think that a lot of people in a lot of churches today know a lot about the Bible, but at the end of the day, they don't read it anymore because it's despairing to them. Because they can't really get anything out of it unless a preacher's preaching or teacher's teaching or a small group is discussing it. Now, by the end of the story, by the end of their time with Jesus, notice verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven, those who were with them gathered together saying the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now notice the 11 also know about the resurrection. They even know about his resurrection appearances. But they too are befuddled. They too are despairing. Then they told, this is the two disciples, what had happened on the road and how he, the resurrected Jesus, was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So I'm, 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 I'm going to now try to name the first guideline to reading the Bible well. The key to open, to unlock the Bible is Jesus Christ. Part of what this means is that, and here's my main point, you have to be a Christian to read the Bible right. Non-Christians can't read the Bible right. You have to be a Christian to read it well. To read it right. Only a person who has had a saving encounter with Jesus. Only a person whom God has opened their eyes and their heart to Jesus. Only that person can read the Bible well. It doesn't matter how many initials are behind their name. Or what elite endowed chair they hold at what university or academic institution living off the borrowed capital of an orthodox past. Only the one who has had a saving encounter with Jesus can read the Bible right and well. There are many ways to read the Bible. You can read it as a historical text. I'm reading James Mishner's novel, The Source, right now. Have any, have any of you read this? I utterly despise it. It is, it is terrible. Very well written. But it's, it's, it's putting... And the reason it's terrible is because it's such a well-told story. It's a page-turner. I love Mishner's works. But it has such a profoundly atheistic view... Not just of reality, but an aggressively anti-Christian view of the Bible. It has this view of not truly divine revelation producing the Bible, but sociological phenomenon of people having ecstatic religious experiences. And the Jewish peoples is just like any other peoples. And it's done so well, I find myself at moments... Even though I have a PhD in this stuff, being tricked into thinking, well, that sounds good. I mean, read the story, just don't believe it. 
You can read. He, he knows the Bible quite clearly and he treats it as a historical artifact. You can read the Bible as a literary marvel. You can take classes at a public university on the literature of the Bible. You can read it as a cultural artifact. There are many, many ways to read the Bible. But the right way to read it is the way the author intended it to be read. And the right reading of the Bible rises and falls on the divine authorship of the Bible. If you aren't committed to that, if you don't show up to the Bible with a firm assumption that God is the chief author, and instead you engage it as an artifact of a religious group, that's a very different way to read it. Did you notice in verse 31 and 32, two quick uses of the same verb? Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? What's the same verb used twice? Opened. Their eyes were opened and the scriptures were opened. Only a Christian can read the Bible well. That's the first lesson. You must be a Christian. God must open your eyes so that you actually see this book is about Jesus. And reading it as if it's not about Jesus is to read it in one of these other ways. Now, these other ways can help our reading. The more people learn about its history and its genre and its literary nature, all of these things play into the way God speaks authoritatively. But they will at the best be over-readings or under-readings. That's the first lesson. It might be the most controversial. Please, at the end, ask me about it. Now, I'm going to have to skip over a whole lot of corollaries of this first thing. The main one is this, prayer. Right reading depends on a relationship with the divine author. If, if, if you can teach people how to read the Bible well without teaching them how to pray, then you're treating it as if its meaning is purely historical. But this passage he's reading out of Isaiah only means in Acts what Philip says it really means. Not from a historical level, but after Jesus has died and rose again, then looking back at it, the deeper meaning has been opened up by the Christ who died and rose again. I've spoken a lot about prayer and scripture and listening in the past. In November of last year, November the 23rd, I preached a whole sermon on this way of engaging with scripture, listening to God, prayerfully listening to God. And because I've I've treated that so much in the past, I'm going to leave that now. If I hadn't done that, that would take up most of the rest of what I'm going to say. Prayer is critical. That's what's wrapped up in saying that we have to have God open our eyes and open our heart. This great, in, in Kevin's prayer, he, he, he quoted Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. So that's the first lesson. For the second lesson, I want you to see that Jesus scolds these two disciples for their failure to believe the Old Testament. Luke 24, 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He called them fools. And he told them they were slow of heart. This is a scolding. This is not a modern parenting technique of building up the ego of the child. He rebukes them for failing to believe the Old Testament. The Old Testament in a certain way. And then we're told, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice, Jesus doesn't fix them by giving them a new vision from heaven. He doesn't fix them by giving them a new revelation. 
Instead, the way he fixes them is by patient exposition of the Old Testament. The crucial truth lies there in the scriptures, not in some hidden revelation. The whole story of the Old Testament, Jesus says, points to me. It's essential for these two disciples to learn that Jesus cannot be understood apart from the Old Testament. And the Old Testament cannot be understood apart from Jesus. Without Jesus, the clue, the key, the puzzle piece, you put all the data together in the wrong way. Jesus is what enables you to read the Old Testament right, which is what enables you to see Jesus right. Remember, these two disciples knew all the stories of the Old Testament. And they knew the stories about Jesus. They had all the information. What did they not have? The pattern. It's like having all the puzzle pieces. It's like spending a lot of time your whole life with the puzzle pieces. In fact, if you lost the puzzle pieces, you could recreate them. You could cut out little cardboard pieces. You know the pieces so well. But you didn't know how they fit together. In fact, you would put them together in some crazy way. So Jesus patiently teaches them how to read the Old Testament correctly. How to go back to the Old Testament. This collection of God's revelation. These scriptures that they had heard and studied and memorized and learned their entire life. And now Jesus has done his great work. His ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And using that as the lens... He opens up to them things in the Old Testament nobody saw coming. It caught everybody off guard. Nobody was putting the Old Testament together in this way. They were reading it in a different way. In a way that was, that was leading them on a national collision with Rome. This is... This way of reading the Old Testament no one had ever perceived prior to the crucifixion and resurrection. So the first lesson is to read the Bible well, you have to read it backwards. You have to start with Jesus. You have to look at it all from Jesus. And the second lesson is that you you don't just scour the Old Testament looking for predictions about Jesus. No, you've got to learn to see how the Bible tells a story. And that story of God's covenant promise unfolding and leading toward the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. In other words, learning to understand the Bible requires that you understand the broad sweep of the Bible. The story from creation through fall and redemption to new creation from Genesis to Revelation. In this way, you see the Bible as a whole, as a grand narrative. So if you grew up in a church that claims the God of the Old Testament is wrathful and the God of the New Testament is gracious, you've driven a wedge in between the two parts of the Bible. You don't have a whole Bible and a whole story. You've fragmented the Bible. If you grew up in a church that you weren't really taught the Old Testament as the story leading to Jesus. But instead, you were taught it as a set of timeless truths only. In America right now, we're at the end of about 140 years of the silence of the Old Testament in the Orthodox churches. Not not to mention the unorthodox churches. The story of the Bible is a whole. You can do a lot of things with this book. But the Christian use of the book requires that the whole of the Bible tells a single coherent story unified on Jesus. Now this is the second guideline to reading the Bible. It's learning the story of the Bible. So look at it this way. There's a particular way of reading the Bible that actually is a coherent, unified story. And if you learn that story, then you can read the Bible well. It's circular. The story the Bible tells is the only appropriate lens for reading the Bible. So when people come to the Bible and they have a a rupture between the Old and New Testament... You're no longer coming to the Bible with the lens of a single story centered on Jesus. 
you'll misread the Bible. Now, so the second guideline is this. You've got to learn the story. The first one is you've got to be a Christian. You've got to be in relationship with God. God has to open your eyes to see this as the story about Jesus. And the second one is you then have to learn that story. The big picture level of it. The broad sweep of it. Let me give you some practical ways to do that. Take essentials. Our church offers a Bible study three times a year called Essentials. And in the first one, I take an hour and 15 minutes. And I start on the first page and I go to the last page. And I tell the story of the Bible. In one sitting. Even if you don't go to our church, take Essentials. You don't have to join our church. That's one way you can do it. You've got to get a hold of it. You've got to feel it in your bones. The second thing is buy this. Well, when you buy this, it should have a cover on it. This is, does anybody know what this is? The Jesus Storybook Bible. Do you understand from the title what it's done? Not to mention it's got remarkable art. But what it is, it's a children's Bible and it's the place to start. Jesus said, become like children. So Kyle, you, sh- you can start here. And it tells the story of the Bible as a single story. And it's wonderful. And the, the pictures are outstanding. And oh, let's see if I can find my wife's favorite. It's Jesus praying in the garden. I can't find it right there. I, rec- I commend this to you. The Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, another, another thing, if you're, if you're too mature for that, is uh, I'm going to recommend two, two more books here. Um, the Drama of Scripture by Craig Bartholomew and Mike Goheen. This is written... For college freshmen, it's at that level, and it tells the story of the Bible, and it teaches you how to understand the story of the Bible. Um, It's in other editions by now, so the front looks a little different. You need to read this. You need, you need, it it helps you get a handle on the whole. Now, if that's kind of too intimidating to you, God's big picture is written at about a 10th grade accessibility level. So when people are trying to learn the Bible, and I'm talking to them, if it's an adolescent, uh, I often recommend this. It's by a guy guy named Vaughn Roberts. It's a little more accessible. This isn't terribly inaccessible. So I, I recommend these tools to you. You've got to get a handle on the big picture of the Bible to read it well. Look, you know this. You know that if... if um. You and I are having an argument, and then suddenly I realize that I totally misinterpreted everything, right? Has that ever happened where somebody's looking at a thing you did, and they just, they, they inserted it into a narrative they already had? A, they were already convinced you didn't like them, right? So do, do you see how the big picture is the critical starting place? What is the big picture? That's what you got to get a hold of. you got to get a hold of the big picture. And the ways to do that are take essentials. Read the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, oh, another one. This is a... How did we get a hold of this, Janelle? Janelle uses this Bible for our kids who are homeschooled. The Beginner's Bible. So a couple of... About two weeks ago, we were reading the Bible as a family. We were reading through 1 Samuel. And there's... I can't remember what it was, but there was something in the story we were reading. And I asked the kids, uh, where else does that kind of thing happen in the Bible? And Shay, our nine-year-old, right away got it. She named about three different places in the Bible this type of thing happened. And I was flabbergasted, right? And, And of course, the other kids who are older, it's kind of insulting, right? And so I said, Shay, how did you do that? Well, she's been reading this Bible. She learned to read like with this, you know, she's just been reading it over and over and over. And so I immediately did the spiritual thing. I offered all of my kids $5 each if they would read it. And I said, if you would read it twice, I'll give you $10. Now in our, now in our house, whenever they get money, there's an immediate 40% tax, right? They have to pay tithe that 10%. They have to do investment. They have to do savings and they have to set 10% aside for, for gifts. So they can come out of this gig with six bucks, you know, which is like twice their allowance. So one of our children, I'll not name Silas's name, but that night, <laughs> next day, Silas said, I read the whole thing, dad, twice. I said, twice? He said, yeah, I read every word twice. 
He read through the Bible, reading each word twice. So I told him that was very clever, but he had to read it as a story twice. So he did. And now Silas has, was paid off for reading the Bible. Look, now you need to read the Bible. You got to get the big picture. You got to get it. All right. We need to learn, first of all, from Jesus to open our lives and our hearts and our minds to Jesus. We have to let him be the master teacher. We have to believe in him. That's the key. And second, we have to learn the big story the Bible's telling. All right. Number three, the third, the final major guideline for how to read the Bible well. When it comes to understanding something, anything really, it's necessary to have the big picture in place. And then what do you do? You dive down into the details. So the third lesson for reading the Bible well is this. You not only have to learn the big story, you've got to learn the little stories. You've got to get them in your bones. You have to learn all those little stories that fit together to tell the big story. To read the Bible well, you have to cultivate a deep knowledge of all those little stories. So you're reading David and Goliath with your family. And then you ask your family, where else in the Bible is there an enemy to God's people with a scaly chest? Killed by his head being destroyed. It's, does anybody know? Where else in the Bible is there a bronze scaled chested giant that a stone destroys? No. Daniel. And where else in the Bible is there a scaly threat to the people of God who's destroyed through the head? The serpent. You can tell the whole story of the Bible through the story of Goliath. Now, look, if you don't know the little stories in your bones, you can't do that. You've got to learn them by heart. When you read the New Testament, the authors assume that you know the stories of the Old Testament by heart. They depend on you knowing them. So much of the way the Gospels are written is by quoting or alluding to a piece of an Old Testament story that they depend on you knowing the whole story to get the point. Not just the quote, not just the allusion, but the wider context. You see, the language and stories of the Old Testament, that was the medium of expression for the New Testament writers. Really easy. You get to the very end of the Bible and there's a tree, a tree of life. Where else in the Bible is there a tree of life? In Genesis. Where else, if you come forward from Genesis, is there a tree of life? Psalm 1. Where else is there a tree that gives life? The crucifixion. So you have to know these stories in your bones. Don't, don't proof text the Old Testament looking for predictions about Jesus. There's very few of those. Learn to recognize the images and the patterns. That's what the New Testament authors did. We need to learn from the gospel writers how to read the Old Testament. And the way they did it was they learned. Matthew tells the story of Jesus' life by taking the major events in the nation of Israel and Jesus recapitulated them. At his birth, there's a tyrant king killing babies. There's a crossing of water. There's a 40-day experience in the wilderness and all three of the temptations in Matthew's Gospels are the exact same order of the three major temptations that Israel faces in the book of Exodus. It's not an accident. Matthew's saying you can't know Jesus if you don't allow the stories of the Old Testament. And he couldn't write a book this big. And... Martin Luther said it this way. He said the Old Testament are the swaddling clothes in which is lain the Christ. I love the image because you've got to pull away the swaddle. You've got to pull away the cloth. You've got to unwrap it. He's not right there on the surface. Now how do we learn the stories of the Old Testament? This way? 
Those of us, those of you who aren't pastors, who don't get to spend, you know, I, I spend up to 20 hours a week studying this. But how do normal people get to do this, right? That's unreasonable. You shouldn't do that. If you did that, you are denying your calling. You have to be faithful to your calling. First to God, first to be your tr- the self God made you to be, and then to your vocation. So how do we do this? How do we learn the scriptures without... All of a sudden turning into someone who's unfaithful to our job and our family and our our own lives. Well, four ways. First of all, go to worship. The primary way to learn scriptures in worship always has been. Always has been. If you have I've said this before, if you have to give up your eyes or your ears, you know, the bad guy runs in and says, I'm destroying one part of your anatomy, eyes or ears. You give up your eyes. You give up your personal devotional time a hundred times in a row before you ever give up listening to the word read, sung, prayed, taught, and worship. That's always been the way it is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The, the, the primary way God addresses his people through his word is when the people of God have gathered in worship. But worship is not enough. It's primary, but it's not sufficient. It's foremost, but it's not sufficient. There's much more work that has to be done. Because you can't learn the Bible going to church on Sunday. It is way too big. There's way too much of it. It, That would be like saying, I'll I'll just eat once on Sunday and that will get me through the week. Try that out for a while. I should try that out for a while. We've, we've, got to, we've got to have more exposure to Scripture than that. Uh, the second level of exposure, I think, is small groups. Get together with a group of Christians who read the Bible and pray and discuss it. Talk about how it's interacting with your life and how your life can interact and live out of the light of Scripture. If you don't have a small group and you're a college student, InterVarsity has a tremendous small group system. Join their small groups. If you're an adult, join our church's small groups or your church's... You've got, to get, you've got to do things with Scripture that you can't do with Scripture and worship. It's about as logical as eating one meal a week. Okay, It's just illogical. It doesn't work that way. Number three, you've got to bring the Scripture into your home. Let me talk about bringing Scripture into the home for, for a moment. If you're not married, I want to encourage you... To find creative and appropriate ways to shape your dorm room or your house into something like a home where you listen with others to God's address in Scripture. Again, uh, we don't have time to go into this, but find creative ways to do it. Find creative ways to make Scripture a part of the place where you live. That's the Shema, right? Put it in the home. Not, even if you're a single, find a way to bring Scripture into that place that shapes you as much as any other place. Now, if you're married, whether you have children or not, I encourage you to find creative and life-giving ways to suffuse your home, your family life with Scripture. This is one of the greatest needs in the church today. Unfortunately, though, too much of Protestantism has tried to make a kind of preaching the way we engage Scripture in the home. So dad walks in, you know. And teaches the Bible or something. That's awful. That'll inoculate people to the gospel. Right? I mean, that's like me going home and teaching my family the Bible in that way is like a police officer going home and treating his family the way he treats people on his job. It's a category flaw. You don't take the church service into the home. That's awful. It's it's a category mistake. It's like a businessman trying to run his family or her family the way they run a business. That's, that's, every sphere has a way of handling scripture appropriate to that place. What we need to do is to recover ways to make our houses and home into places where we interact with scripture in appropriate ways to the homes. Um... The most powerful way I know to do this is the church calendar. The church calendar. 
the church calendar. When Janelle and I had children, when Janelle and I first got married, she had these delusions of grandeur that I would teach her the Bible. Janelle grew up not really knowing the scriptures. And she was marrying a preacher and she wanted us to have devotions together. And I couldn't bear the thought of having a devotion with my wife. And it was a source of tension early on until she came to see things my way. And um, I, I can't explain it all. I'm sure there's some sort of weird psychology that Phil, I could lay on his couch and he could figure out. But we had kids and, and we knew we wanted to teach our kids the Bible. And we, this is how we, this, is, this was the first key move in us becoming Anglican. We found the church calendar. And we knew that we could bring into our home Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, ordinary time. And so I put up here this Jesse tree. I've told the church about this so much because it is so life-giving. It is so easy in such a powerful way to bring Christianity to the home. So the Jesse tree, you do this at Advent And our church produces a list of readings. It's been going on a long time. There's lots of lists out there. And basically you're reading from Genesis to the birth of Jesus each day of Advent. Which is the season leading up to Christmas. The first day you read Genesis 1. So we have a candle here. Whichever, there's seven in our family. There's seven, five kids and mom and dad. So we go in order of birth. Janelle was the oldest. So she gets Sundays. (laughs) I get every Monday, then Spencer every Tuesday. And so it's easy. What day of the week it is, you know, that way if we missed a day or something, we just, there's seven of us. It, it, it's the way we planned it. So, <laughs> so whoever it's day it is, they light the candle because Christ is the light of the world. Then we read the scripture passage for that day, which is, and then we, that person holds the ornament, looks at it and puts it on the tree. And, and, um, and we made these ornaments over the years as a family. This is a... Elizabeth, this is Mary. Sorry, Mary. (laughs) This is bakeable clay. This is so much fun to do with your children. Some of them required several years to actually turn the abstract art into representational art. But um, it's tactile. But look, you don't have to be a child to do this. In fact, I think Zeke and Jesse do it on a life-size tree. Zeke's quest this year is to build life-size dudes of these and hang them on their Christmas tree, you know, each day. And by doing this for 18 years, Shelby will be, I will read the story of the Old Testament to Shelby 18 times in a fun, easy way. But not just Shelby, I'll read it 18 times. Have any of you read it 18 times? I mean, this is remarkable, right? And it's easy. And it's just hitting the high points. Now, in the church calendar from Christmas to Easter, every year there's a gospel assigned to that time. This year it's Luke goes in a three-year cycle, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So, um, I encourage you to read through the stories of the Old Testament, the high points in Advent. That's the days leading up to Christmas. And then from Christmas to Easter, read through a gospel every year. You can just read little chunks at a time. This year it's Luke. And here's what I would, a way to do this. Buy this book. It's little. It's cheap. I think it's like 12 bucks. Luke for Everyone by N.T. Wright. So N.T. Wright's the leading New Testament scholar in the world today. And he did the world a tremendous gift. He wrote a very easy to read commentary on all the books of the New Testament. So here's what I would tell you parents. The dangerous thing about reading the Bible to your kids is they ask questions. And, and it's hard. It really is hard. It's hard to know, is it worth staying up to answer this question? It's hard to, to try to give an accurate answer. I, I'm convinced that a lot of parents don't read the Bible with their kids because they don't know what to tell them. So here's my cheat sheet. Buy this book. He writes like two pages on each passage of scripture, like each story. Three pages sometimes. If he doesn't talk about it and your kids ask a question about something he didn't talk about, you can rest in peace. What they're asking doesn't matter. (laughs) I'm not joking. 
This is the leading New Testament scholar in the world. He is a devout Christian. He's the best reader of the Bible I know alive today. So you mom and dad who who are scared of the questions your kids are going to ask, just five minutes beforehand, go in a corner and read this. And then if they ask something that's not in there, you can just be like, you know, that's a great question. We'll talk about that another time. And you don't have to feel like you've done a bad thing. Ordinary time, that's from after 50 days after Easter, Pentecost, and it's six months of the year. We read the Old Testament stories during this time. We, right now we're reading through 1 Samuel. We read, you know, I picked the, the, the most <laughs> scandalous ones I can find. I just read them to my kids. Not, not the most. I mean, there's a few I haven't read yet, but... But read about David and Esther, skip over parts of Esther, or just don't explain them. Ruth, 1 Samuel is so fun to read. The life of David, Jacob, Abraham. And look, when you read them, as, you know, and you don't have to just do this with kids. Whoever you're living with, you can do this. You don't have to have a Bible study. Just ask one simple question. What did you notice? That's all you got to ask. What stands out to you? That's all you got to ask. Because you're not trying to pierce the meaning You're trying to get the stories in your bones so that when a teacher comes along and you're walking down the road to Emmaus, the stories are there to work with. See, we do need to pay a pastor to take time to learn the deeper truths of Scripture that we don't have time to learn. But it sure helps if you've got the stories there. All right. Um, some, I'll wrap up with some, and you need to have a daily devotion. I'm, I'm, this is going to be recorded and put online and, and, um, I've got some stuff written about how to have a daily devotion. My manuscript will be online too. You can look that up if you want, but I, I want to jump now to the last thing, um, four helpful tricks. So the three primary guidelines are you need to have a relationship with Jesus and you need to pray and you need to pray. God deliver me from the double blindness I was born to sin. And ignorance. So that I can read scripture well. You need to ask God. Help me to read scripture. You need to get a hold of the big story. You need to get a really get a hold of it. And then you need to dive down and learn all the little stories. Which will help you learn the bigger story better. Which will help you learn the little stories better. This is the basic starting place for reading scripture. Now. Some helpful tricks. I stole these from N.T. Wright. I found them so helpful. I want to pass them on to you. When you're reading the Bible, the first helpful trick is this. Is it water or is it wine? And what I mean by that is some parts of the Bible are best drunk like a large glass of water on a hot day. In other words, large quantities at a time. Others, many parts of Paul's letters, they're best sipped and savored drop by drop like a fine wine. No single sermon could ever reveal all the riches of a passage at hand. You know, if, if you find out they're preaching on a certain passage of Scripture that you've heard a hundred sermons on, you should never say, oh, I don't need to go that. I already know that passage. It's got a wondrous depth. It's endlessly rich. So we need to pour over Scripture. We need to read it. Robert Penn Warren once said that the most natural reading of a poem occurs not on the first or the tenth, but on the hundredth reading. Listen to that. The most natural reading of a poem is not on the first or the tenth, but the hundredth reading. So you keep reading. You keep reading. Then other things, you just sit down and read it in one big jab. Look, you, one of the best classes I had in seminary, um, that's where preachers go to school to, to learn their, the, the, the scriptures and other things, was um, I took Hebrew exegesis, Hebrew interpretation of Joshua. That means we were reading it in the, in the Hebrew language. But for the first day of class, our teacher said to us, um, don't open your Hebrew Bibles. I want you to go home tonight and I want you to read it in the English in one setting. Don't get up. Do all your business beforehand. Sit there and read it nonstop in one setting. So we come back to class the next day with our, with our Hebrew Bibles. So excited. He says, here's tonight's homework. I want you to read it in one setting with your English Bible. We did that for the whole week, every day. It changed the game for me. There, you need to read the Bible like this. You don't always have to get something out of it. Sometimes you just you need to let the big sweep of it sweep over you. Other times you take just one paragraph, like a glass of fine wine, and you just sip it. 
You read it slowly. You turn your Bible upside down because that way you can read it really slowly. It's one of the best. It, it's a really good technique. It forces you to stop and notice things. Number two. So that's the first trick. Sometimes you read it in a big gulp. You read big pieces of it really fast. And sometimes you read little pieces of it really slow over and over and over. The second trick to reading the Bible is this. Different parts of the Bible help you in different ways. Some parts of the Bible give us very specific directions for life. Proverbs. So you read Proverbs and you get the book of James. Look, with these books, don't try to interpret them. Just do what they say. Don't try to understand their meaning. Just do what they tell you to do. Some of the parts of the Bible are that. They're just immediate instruction. So, when you're reading through Proverbs and, well, when your Sunday school teacher and you're a third grader makes you memorize, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the God of correction drives it far from him. Not that I'm bitter or anything. (laughs) Not that I still remember Mrs. Ogilvy making me memorize that. I don't know why. Just do it. But there are other parts of the Bible that that's not what you do. You don't do that at all. You don't obey them at all. Like the Psalms. Pray them. Just pray it. Turn it into a prayer. You're smart enough to figure this out. It's somebody else's prayer. Well, you might have to tweak a word here or a word there. But just pray out loud using those words to God. I promise. It's better prayers than you can pray on your own. People who are anti-read prayers... Why aren't they anti-pre-written songs? What if we required our worship service to only do spontaneous singing? (laughs) Because if somebody already wrote it and it's their words, I can't really mean it. Yes, you can. You do it with songs. And you know why we do that? You know why we don't let Don write a piece of song on music on, on Sunday morning? Because it would be terrible. There's always going to be a place for spontaneous praying. As long as people have cancer. Our hearts are going to overflow in spontaneous prayers. And as long as we have joy, it will overflow. But how are you going to get out of infantile praying? If you don't learn to pray from somebody who knows how to pray well. In fact, that's how Jesus learned to pray. When we look at Jesus' prayer in the moments of great extreme, he's stealing lines from the Psalms. Not as predictions, but because they have become his prayers. Because when you push Jesus, when when, when Jonah's in the belly of the well and he's scared to death, you know what prayer comes out? Every line of it is straight out of the Psalms. Every single line of it. Pray the Psalms of Lament. Because one day you will need them. And when you need them, it is too late to learn them. Pray the Psalms of praise. Because some of you don't wake up in a good mood. The Psalms are for praying. Jesus prayed the Psalms. We pray the Psalms. Pray them every day. Just start at number one. Go work your way through. Actually, number one and two are the most difficult to pray because they're kind of introductions to the Psalms, but you can turn it into a prayer. The Gospels. That's different entirely. I mean, they're stories about Jesus. Read the Gospels and say, what is Jesus' act? What is his mindset? Because that is the revelation of God. And imitate it. Read the Gospels and fall in love with Jesus. Read them in, a, in one sitting. Read Matthew in one sitting. You can do this. Probably take 45 minutes. Now, that's my second bit of advice. Different parts of the Bible function in different ways. The third piece of advice is what to do when you get to a hard bit. When you get to a, when you're reading and, man, it is just really hard. And this is... A, I think, first of all, avoid the easy solution of assuming it's not inspired by God. If you get to something that you disagree with, that's hard for you, humble yourself before the Almighty. 
and avoid the easy solution of thinking it's wrong and your enlightened way is right. Secondly, well, and I, you don't abolish the bits you disapprove of. Not if God wrote this. Not if God is the chief author. Secondly, recognize that some people are temperamentally suited to a particular book and others to another book. Zechariah does not float my boat. John's gospel, it's really hard for me. You know, I've all, there's, there's been this move in, in some parts of, of the Christian world that when a person becomes a Christian to ask them to read the book of John, I've never asked a new Christian to read the book of John. I find it very, very tricky. Now, out of curiosity, is anybody the opposite of me? It's your favorite? Well, yeah. We're temperamentally suited. So sometimes when you come up to something that just doesn't work for you, move on. Move on. Finally, practice patience. God might have something to say to you through a difficult passage that you're not ready for. That he needs to do something inside of you before you can read it. Before you can get it. God might want you to suffer the dry desert of incomprehension. God might want you to fast and weep and pray and beg for him to open your eyes. Wonderful, wonderful stories of um, Thomas Aquinas, the great doctor of medieval doc, Catholic of the, of the medieval Catholic Church, in reading scripture and getting to a place he doesn't understand. And he had witnesses that wrote accounts of his life saying he would go days of fasting, begging God, open my eyes, weeping. This is the bread of life until he could see it. Wouldn't you do that with your spouse if you hit something where you just couldn't reach each other? Maybe that's what God wants. Some passages we have to grow up into morally and spiritually. Just like a little boy inheriting his big brother's clothes. Flopping around in them until he finally fills them out. Number four. Last kind of little piece of advice. You got to slow your life down. Give scripture a pride of place in your life. And this requires a true effort. Don't allow your life to be swallowed up by frenetic activity. You won't learn the Bible. You can't learn the Bible on the run. All right. I'm going to stop there.